Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 through 16, 15. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the plagues on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. They came, excuse me, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord." Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your provision, your provision of bread, the bread of life, for giving us Jesus, for giving us your word that we would be able to feast upon it, even as we do now as we come to the preaching of it. 
So Father, I pray for your people. I pray that you would help them. Lord, teach them and train them, lead them in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And Father, help me, your servant, protect me from error, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story about a man who decided to join a monastery, and part of his joining the monastery was he took a vow of silence. After a few years, the head monk called him in, commended him for his faithfulness to God, and commended him for keeping his vow. He said this, he said, as a reward... I will call you in occasionally. You won't know when, but I'll call you in and I'll allow you to speak two words. This will not nullify your vow. You may speak two words just in my presence. Do you have anything to say? The man replied, two words, food bad. (laughs) A few years later, the head monk called him in once more. After praising him for his ongoing faithfulness to his vow, he asked, do you have anything to say today? The man replied, two words, bed hard. Another few years went by, and the head monk again called him in. You have remained faithful to your vow all these years. Well done. Do you have anything to say now? The man said, I quit. I'm not surprised, the head monk replied. You've done nothing but grumble and complain since the moment you got here. (laughs) Grumbling is an important word in our text this morning. I tried to highlight it for you in the reading. But from Exodus 15.22 through 16.15, you'll find the word nine times. It's there in 15.24. It's there in 16.2. You'll see it twice in 16.7. You'll see it three times in 16.8, and you'll see it once in each 16.9 and 16.12. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And then each use, the people of Israel are grumbling. They're complaining. And what are they grumbling about? What are they complaining about? They're grumbling about a lack of water and a lack of food. Sounds like a typical day in the life of a home with growing children, doesn't it? We know this sound. Still, people need food, right? People need food. They need water to survive. The people of Israel, remember from where we came from last week, the people have just celebrated the marvelous and magnificent grace and power of God. To what? To deliver them from Egypt. They're now setting out from the Red Sea. They have a journey in front of them to Canaan. Remember, this is a group that we're told are 600,000 men. So including their wives and children, you got about 2 million people. Talk about a traveling party. 2 million people. They're in the wilderness. What do we know about the wilderness? It's a place already scarce on natural resources of food and water. Food and water that they are in desperate need of. They did find unsuitable water, right, at the end of 15. We just read that in the wilderness. And sure, they also found themselves with growling bellies in the wilderness of sin. So let me ask you, what would you have done? How would you have responded? If you're anything like me or anything like these Israelites, you would have became hangry, 
hungry, angry, right? You would have done just what they did. You would have grumbled. The problem with grumbling is that grumbling is a sin. Grumbling is not lamentation. Grumbling is not groaning or longing. Grumbling is not even faithful disagreement. The Bible, especially the Psalms, is full of examples of godly people who humbly cry out to God and say, God, I'm hurt. God, I'm scared. God, I'm grieving. God, I'm anxious. God, I wish my circumstances were different. Would you please do something to help me? I trust in you to help. Grumbling is the opposite of that. Grumbling is not a humble cry to God. Rather, grumbling is a self-centered declaration of independence. Grumbling is a battle cry that says, I know how to run my life better than you do, God. Instead of what we read over and over in the Psalms, this hurts God. But I bow my heart to yours. And I say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Grumbling, make no mistake, is a grievous faithlessness in the face of a faithful God. So to help us understand the dangers of grumbling, and particularly, and I got slapped around this week studying this, the dangers of our own grumbling, my own grumbling, I'd like us to consider three truths about the grumblings of the people of Israel here in the text before us. So the first of these truths, if you're taking notes, the first is that grumbling distorts the past. Grumbling distorts the past. The account there in 15, 20 through, 22 through 27 is actually quite instructive. You'll notice in verse 22 that Moses makes Israel set out from the Red Sea. Like he gets to break up the party all right, all the celebration. The original language here hints at that. It's actually quite strong. The people are overcome with joy and celebration, right? As any of us would be. This act of deliverance, it's wonderful. And they celebrated. We took a whole week just to focus on that celebration. That's how meaningful and monumental it is. But that celebration was not the sole reason for why they were delivered. They weren't delivered just so that they could have a worship service on the other side of the Red Sea. They were delivered for freedom. They were delivered for a lasting freedom, a freedom that would be hemmed in by God's faithfulness to bring them not just there, but safely all the way back to Canaan all the way to the promised land. So yes, celebration was right and goodful, good, sorry, and worshipful. But there was still a journey ahead of them. They were a long way. And we know from reading the scriptures, they're 40 years away. So like a skilled rancher, Moses rounds up the people. That's the language here. He rounds them up and drives them into the wilderness. Later, when the people come, to the waters called Mara. They find the water to be bitter. It's undrinkable. Following God's instruction, and this has to be from the Lord, right? Hey, pick up that log and throw it in there. Because we all think to do that, right? Can't drink this water. It's bad. It's not pure. I'm just going to throw a log in it. It'll be okay. Obviously a miracle from the Lord. 
He throws it in there. The water doesn't just become drinkable. It says it becomes sweet. I think a sweet tea maybe. But it becomes sweet. And the people have their full upon this miracle. Look what happens in verses 25 and 26. This is a pre-Sinai kind of covenant that'll be repeated at Sinai and throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It says that the Lord makes a statute and a rule for the people, makes a law for the people. Verse 25 says he tested them. He tested them. What is the statute and the rule? What's the nature of this testing? Verse 26 lays it out. Simple instructions. Listen diligently to God's voice. Do what is right in his eyes. Pay attention to his commandments. Keep every one of his statutes. Simple, right? They can all do that on their own. No, they can't. He'll help them. Look what he says. Then he will not afflict them with the diseases or literally plagues that he afflicted Egypt. And he gives Israel a name. I wish we could just camp out here all day. We must move on. But he tells them his name is Yahweh Rapha, right? the Lord your healer. Just as he healed the waters, so he will heal his people. And he does it immediately. He leads them to a place called Elam. And there they rest in the presence. And here's where numbers are important, right? 12, 12 springs of water. 70 palm trees. This is a lush place. It's a picture of true paradise in the middle of the wilderness. The Lord is testing them. God has led them already through a valley, bitter water. He's going to lead them through more. But what does he do, though? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with them. And he leads them, quite literally, to still waters right there where they can rest. And then chapter 16 happens. It opens with a note explaining that it has now been a month. So it's the second month. It's been a month since they departed from Egypt. So after a lavish stay in the lap of luxury, they get moved on again, and this time to a place called the wilderness of sin, which, by the way, has nothing to do with our English word sin. Uh, Makes sense, but it rather is related to the name Sinai, Okay, so it's related to that. Nevertheless, it does become a place of sin, does it not, for this people? I mean, they're clearly hungry. But let's look again. I want, I want, to, I want us to hear again in verses 2 and 3. Listen to what they say. They grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. And this is what they said. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots... And ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I mean, what they're saying is it would have been better to die in Egypt. You remember those large pots of meat that we used to sit by? Sounds great, actually. Remember all the bread that we ate? Man, those were the good old days. That's, that's what they sound like. It's like they're saying, what I wouldn't give to go back there. At least I had lots of meat and lots of bread. After all the miracles they had witnessed, after all that the Lord had done for them, they think that their past was so much better than their present. That all of that was for naught. 
might have been better for God not to display his glory and make his name known and reveal himself to us in mighty ways, just so I could sit by and eat all that meat and bread. Have they forgotten how they groaned and cried out to God because of their slavery? Doesn't the book of Exodus begin with that? Aren't they crying out to God? Do they not remember the hardship of having to make the bricks without the needed amount of straw? The straw is no longer delivered to them. They've got to go out and find stubble to mix in with it, and they still have to meet their quotas. Do they not remember all of the despair that they suffered under? Quite honestly, it's hard to know whether to laugh or to cry at this, right? This is tough. They're clearly blinded by nostalgia of some sort. They're forgetful of all that they had endured. I understand hunger does tend to make us act in unreasonable ways. But in light of all that God had done and all that God had promised, do they not realize that grumbling in this way does them no good? I mean, are we really any different? Are we really any different? I'm not talking about just when you're hungry. When God leads us, and he does, when he leads us by his providence, when he leads us into difficult circumstances and hardships, do we respond any better than them? This isn't a competition. But do we respond any different? Does the grace of God that overcame past hardships, does it just fade so quickly into the background? that all we can find room for now is to focus on earthly conveniences. We focus on the things that we don't have that we used to have that are missing now and say, you know, that would be so much better if I had all that stuff. Do we really so easily forget all that we've endured and that it wasn't us that brought us through, that it was God? Do we forget all that God has done for us? I think the answer to that question is yes. At least for your pastor, it is. Yes, we do. I do. Grumbling does a lot of things, but what I want us to see first is that it indeed does distort the past. It doesn't just do that. Second thing I want you to see is that it exaggerates the present. Grumbling exaggerates the present. That's our second truth this morning, that the Israelites make a somewhat bizarre claim at the end of chapter 16, uh, verse 3. What do they say? Look there. It says, to Moses and Aaron, you have brought us out into this wilderness for what purpose? What do they say? To kill. To kill all of us with hunger. You brought us out here to starve to death. That's what they say. I mean, you read that, right? And reasonable people go, whoa, hold the drama. Like, back down just a little bit. I mean, is that really what Moses has done? Let's be reasonable. Is that what Moses has done? Was it Moses and Aaron's sinister plan all along for God to use them in such a mighty and incredible way to be the prophet and the priest of God's people who leads them into magnificent and marvelous miracles just so they can sit back and watch them starve to death. Can they truly be so unreasonable? Yep, they can, because we do the same thing. The question is, do they really believe that? 
Do they really believe that? I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about how the people of Egypt left. 17.3 will tell us, again, reminded, they left with all their flocks and herds. Right? They left with a lot of stuff. They, they were rich in the land of Egypt. They had Goshen. They had that land. They had all the flocks. Their, their, their flocks didn't die. They took them out of Egypt with them. They had animals. They had food. They could milk those animals. They could slaughter those animals so that they could eat them. They had resources readily available to them right there at their fingertips. So what are they talking about? Are they really talking about needs or are they talking about wants? Kevin DeYoung, when discussing this passage, he talks about his childhood, which I'm sharing with you because I share it with him. He remembers being young and hungry and going to his mom and saying, Mom, I'm starving. He says that his mom would respond by saying, You're not starving. The kids in Ethiopia are starving. Would you like me to show you some pictures? You look nothing like them. You're not starving. Get out of here. I heard that. Maybe you did too. Many of us have heard that. Maybe you sound like that with your kids today. But the point is, Kevin DeYoung here is clearly exaggerating, right? He's not really starving, uh, just as the Israelites are exaggerating in this passage. But, but Moses, God's chosen shepherd for his people, was not leading these people to their slaughter, right? That's not true to say such a thing, to exaggerate in such a way, to blow it out of proportion in such a way, is actually a serious self-deceiving sin that leads to the further sin of slandering Moses and Aaron. That's slander that they are guilty of. You see, by focusing on temporal wants, no matter if they're real wants or perceived wants, by focusing on present and temporal wants in such a self-serving way, Israel ends up exaggerating the truth of the matter and they plot their course on a road of grumbling that can only lead to miserable sin and failure of God's test. In the same way, like we do when we take our eyes off the Lord, when we take our eyes off of his ever-present mercies, we also crash into a faithless and a hopeless and an ultimately foolish abandonment of the true and present reality that we're facing. I'll go back to the child and refrigerator analogy again. Like a child who stands in front of a refrigerator full of food and says, there's nothing in this house to eat. I'm gonna starve to death. So the Israelites stand in front of Moses and Aaron, rescued from slavery, saved from the armies of Pharaoh, dressed in the finest linens and jewelry of the people of Egypt, with animals, literal food, all around them, and say, there's nothing for us to eat. You brought us here to kill us, to starve us. Grumbling most certainly exaggerates the present. Grumbling exaggerates the present, almost makes it at times unnoticeable. Does it for them and for us, but that's not the only thing that grumbling does. For grumbling also robs us of the joy of future grace. 
That's our third and final truth in the text this morning. Grumbling robs us of joy, of the joy of future grace. It's quite convicting this week in study, and I'll just tell you, I, I never cease to be amazed how God responds to his people. I hope it never, never grows old. He's a much better father than I could ever hope to be. Instead of cutting them off altogether, instead of shaming them for failing to embrace his past and present provisions, what does he do? He gives them meat and he gives them bread. But not just any bread, he gives them bread from heaven. That's what the text says bread from heaven. This bread is called manna, which literally translates to what is it? When they say, what is it? That's what they decided to call it. They ate, what is it? All those years. It's called manna. It's surprising yet delightful. It says it's flaky or fluffy and sweet. Sometimes I wonder if it tasted like a Krispy Kreme donut. You know, hot right there. Um, either way, it was abundant. I mean, I struggle feeding four people sometimes in our home, right? But it's enough for all the people to eat. All two million. Enough for each day. Chapter 16, and we didn't read through a lot of it, but it goes into all the details of how the people were to go out and get it and collect it. Uh, enough for each day. It was there in the morning. Uh, except for the sixth day, right? They were to collect enough for the sixth day and the Sabbath day. They were not to work. Uh, again, Sabbath provisions here because it's a creation ordinance. It's here for them as well. Uh, they're to go out and collect all those days. Um, they take too much and what happens? It rots, right? You know, we'd all be tempted to do that. That stuff's good. I don't know what it is. What is it? It's good, right? And so they take it, oh, it takes some extra and then it would rot overnight. Right? Or if they didn't collect enough, like if they're like, well, we better leave it out there because you know, there's those two types of people, right? The hoarders and then the, oh, I'm just going to get what I need right now and I'll go back later and get lunch and later and get dinner. But the problem with that is, is it melted in the sun. So then it was gone. So quite literally by faith, you had to go out every morning and say, this is what I need for my family today. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily what is it. Give us our manna. That's what they were instructed to do. If you didn't know this, let me tell you now, God supplied this bread for the people for the rest of their wilderness journey. Every day for 40 years, except for the Sabbath day, but you get the point for the week, every day for the next 40 years until they came to the promised land. You'll find in the book of Joshua, as soon as they ate of the food in the promised land, the manna dried up, it was gone. God sustained them until they came to the promised land. He provided manna for them. There's only one bit of manna that survived. And that was the part that Aaron was instructed to put in a jar. And one day, here it's future, but we know he puts that in the Ark of the Covenant along with the two tablets. A jar of manna so the people would always remember. What is it? It's bread from heaven. God fed you. God sustained you. Well, you won't be surprised to find out that in this 40 years of wilderness wandering, and you can go and read it later in Numbers 11, the people actually find a way to grumble about this manna. You're not surprised. 
Even when gifted with this miraculous sign of sustenance, the people still found a way to grumble and complain about it. They grumbled because, why? Because they took their eyes off of God. They failed to fully appreciate what he was providing for them. They had already neglected his past grace. They had already neglected his present grace. So it reasonably follows that they will neglect his future grace as well. They're essentially saying, we know that you promised to feed us this bread, God. It's actually quite delicious, and we're glad you gave it to us, even if we don't know what it is. Thank you for giving it to us, but is this all? Can we maybe have some variety? What else can you give us? So here's the question. Is there not enough joy? Is there not enough joy to be found in the gracious promise of this manna alone? Is the insatiable desire for more and more and more or perhaps the covetous desire for something new and different and better altogether? Is that desire, those desires, are they keeping them, are they keeping us from the joy to be found in what he's provided today? Does that joy not increase when we take a moment, when they, we take a moment and say, you know what, God's gonna continue to give this to us. He's promised to give this to us. He's always gonna provide it for us. Is there not joy there? So Christians, let me ask you this. Plainly, are you satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ Jesus today? Isn't he the bread of life? Didn't we read that earlier? We'll go to it in a minute. Are you satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ Jesus today? Do you know that he's actually the same tomorrow as he is today? Do you know that he never changes? Do you know that his mercies are new every morning? Is there joy to be found in the future grace and provision you have in him tomorrow? We sang earlier, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. It's bright hope for today and strength for tomorrow as well. It's all there. I think the question that gnawed at me most of the week and even this morning is why must we rob ourselves? Why must we rob ourselves of tomorrow's joy, tomorrow's future grace joy with our grumbling today? So grumbling, we've said, is the act of declaring that control of our lives is best left to us. Grumbling robs us of the joy of future grace. Grumbling blinds us to that grace. And I would argue that grumbling shackles us to a misery that writhes in despair and fails to rejoice in the good that is promised to come. Grumbling distorts the past, it exaggerates the present, and it most certainly robs us the joy of future grace. Would you go ahead and turn there to John 6? Here we find Jesus speaking with some Jews who were following him. And of course, they ask him for a sign to prove himself. In verse 31, they bring up their fathers who ate the manna in the wilderness. You know, hey, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That was given as a sign. What sign do you give us? And so Jesus then makes a connection between his appearing himself and the manna. And so if you turn to chapter six, let's look at verse 32. 
Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. That's the right response. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen, right? Talk about future grace. How do the Jews respond? Sounds familiar, right? Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled, same word, about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The Jews are still grumbling. Uh, In this passage, these people fail to see the wonderful gift that Jesus is to them. They fail to see that the manna in the wilderness was always a sign. It was a giant flashing sign, not saying hot and fresh. It was a, a sign pointing forward to this day, the day here, uh, pointing forward to Jesus. The manna was pointing to Jesus and to his daily and future sustaining grace by his presence and his power. It was pointing to the fact that one day the true bread from heaven would come down and he would deliver his people, not from Egypt, but he would deliver them from the bondage of sin and death and that he would lead them through the wilderness, the wilderness of this life. He's gonna bring them safely to heaven, to the promised land. Is that not what he said? In verses 37 through 40. So what sets them apart from us? What sets these people who grumble from those who believe in Jesus? It's the same thing that sets apart anyone who follows Jesus. It's grace. It's sovereign grace. Sovereign grace that shatters our grumbling. Sovereign grace that gives us faith, but also renews our faith and turns us to absolute and total dependence upon God. Sovereign grace that leads us to embrace the final and full joy in all that God is for us and our Savior. It's sovereign grace that helps Peter to say, if you look over in John 6, 68 and 69, just look to the very end. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? All these hundreds, maybe thousands of people just turn away and leave and all that's left are the 12. And he goes, are you gonna leave too? What does Peter say? To where do we go? To where would we go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. And we believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. My earnest prayer for myself and for you, for all of us, is that we would be so transformed by this grace that we would learn to cease from our grumbling. That we would instead faithfully grieve and lament when necessary, because that is necessary. It's good to grieve. It's good to lament. 
I pray that we would never cease to feed ourselves with the wonderful manna, the saving bread of life, the very grace that God's given to us through Jesus Christ, that we would feed upon him, not only just in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but in his word, that we would devour his word, that we would know it and know him through it, that we would find joy and hope in knowing that he is always and forever all that we need to endure in this world. Do you believe that? Do you know that Jesus is everything that you need to endure in this world? So what are you grumbling about today? My list is probably too long, probably too embarrassed to show you. What are you grumbling about? To what trial has the Lord led you to? What trial could he possibly have led you to that he won't also provide for you in the midst of it, sustain you through it? What trial is there that God can't see you through? Do you trust that God is faithful? Because that's what he's calling the Israelites to do here. Hear my word, believe my word, trust me. Do you trust the Lord? I pray that you do. I know it's gonna be frail, it's gonna be fragile, it's gonna be hard. You're in good company but let us trust him more and more. Amen and amen.